Well, I invite you, if you'd like, to turn to John uh, chapter 17. John chapter 17. We'll start reading at verse 6 to kind of get a running start. And we'll read down through verse uh, 12. Before we read and look at it, let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for your word. It is everything we need for godliness, for eternal life, for faith. Everything we need is found in here. And so we pray that this wouldn't be a dead exercise where we just learn information or are reminded about information, but that we'd be led to you and that our hearts would worship and praise you and that Jesus Christ, your son, would be exalted during this time. So fill each of us with your Holy Spirit. Give every one of us what we need. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. All right, John 17, verse 6. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. As far as the reading of God's word, may he bless it to our hearts and lives this morning. Beloved Congregation of Hope and everyone uh, listening here uh, today, uh, John's gospel is a unique gospel of all the four. It's not only uh, historically written later than the rest, but it's very reflective. It's a gospel where we see this uh, Jesus before time began with God, this great big uh, uh, meta picture, big picture from John. And it's a gospel that records uh, many unique things about the Lord Jesus Christ. And one of those unique things recorded is the upper room discourse and then this high priestly prayer in John 17. Nowhere in all the other gospels do we have the high priestly prayer of Jesus recorded uh, for us, like in John 17. And it's interesting, it's called the high priestly prayer. We could just call it the Lord's Prayer if we wanted to. It's called the high priestly prayer because priests brought the people to God. They were given to the Israelites to bring the people's sins and concerns to God through sacrifice. And here's Jesus acting on behalf of his people to bring our concerns, our cares, our status before God to his Father, talking about how he's kept us and how he wants his Father to keep them as well and how they're joined in this work, Father and Son, to help us and to be concerned for us and to love us eternally. So we see him acting as this incredible high priest, these perfect words being brought to his Father on our behalf. As we walk through this prayer, one of the things I want us to notice this morning, really just two things that, that Jesus highlights in this prayer. 
And I, I really, we'll, we'll get through this prayer eventually. It might take longer than we thought, but I want us just to highlight two things. There's a lot actually to munch on in these two things. The first is that Jesus communicates, as he communicates with his father, as he prays to his father, he talks about believers belonging to God. That is a characteristic of believers. We belong to God. And second, we are kept by God. Those two things I want to focus on. We belong to God and we're also kept by God. So first of all, we belong to God. If you would look at verses nine through 10, I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those who you have, whom you have given me. For, catch this, they are yours. All mine are yours and yours are mine and I am glorified in them. So the language, they are yours. Now the tense is different. Just a few verses earlier, Jesus had in verse 80, he's talked about uh, they were yours, right? And now you've given them to me. But here he says, they are yours, which is slightly different. Now there's some overlap there, of course. All believers belong to God and have from all eternity. But he's talking about Christians as belonging to God. And then he flushes that out even more saying, look, all mine are yours and yours are mine. What he's communicating, what he's praying is that, look, believers are those people who belong to God. Believers are those who belong to God. We find our belongingness, as it were, in God. Now, we could explore belonging to God in terms of our obligation to him. We go to 1 Corinthians 6. We're not our own. We've been bought with a price, right? So glorify God in your bodies. That would be one way to explore the implications of what it means to belong to God. But the passage before us is not focused so much on how belonging to God affects our lifestyle as far as what's our moral obligation. But the focus of the passage is our security and what belonging to God means and how it strengthens our faith and our inner workings of our soul, what this does for our belief and for uh, the strengthening of what we believe. And so what does belonging to God the Father and being owned by him and being the special objects of his belonging, his belonging mean for how we regard ourselves in this world as believers? What does it mean for us? And that's what I would like to tease out here. What does it mean to belong to God? How, how does that affect how we regard ourselves in this world? Well, it means several things. And the first one I want to look at or focus on is this. I think it's helpful to acknowledge that we as human beings were made to belong to God. We were created to belong to him. And what's taken place ever since Adam and Eve sinned and were removed from the garden is that every one of us is conceived into this world with this keen sense that the place we're supposed to belong, we no longer belong in. That our hearts were, as Augustine put, our hearts were made for God and they're restless until they find their rest in him. We were made to be gods, to belong to him. Everybody, every human being was, but we lost that naturally. Meaning we come into the world and we no longer belong unless we're born again and brought into a relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ, his son. So we were made to be in a special relationship with God. Adam and Eve had that. Imagine that walking with God. I don't know how long they existed in that perfect state, but walking with God, God walking with him, being able to talk with him in fellowship, incredible bliss. When that was gone, our place of belonging that we were made for in, in God's bosom, right with him, is now lost. And we're outside the garden, and there's a keen sense in every human being, whether they want to admit it or not, that there's something out there which will finally satisfy us, and we can't find it in the world. 
I can't discover it in things that I can see with my eyes. And we don't belong. Everywhere we turn to, we find a sense of not belonging. C.S. Lewis, in, in a maybe a bit of a roundabout way, would call this the inner ring. It's the place where you are securing your relationships. It, it's the place where you're an insider. And ever since we've been out of the garden, we're now outsiders to the life of God, unless he acts on our behalf. And he described it in his uh, uh, inimitable way about how powerful the inner ring is by using an illustration from work. And he said, look, nobody likes to be asked to stay late for work on a special project. Nobody likes that. We're going to be home doing hobbies and hanging out with our family or friends or whatever the case is. But there is one thing we like, we, we, which is worse than that. The thing which is worse than being asked to stay late for a special project is not being asked. And being the one who's passed by and the one who didn't quite make the cut when all the heads and the directors got together to say, these are the important people that we need on the task and our name is left off the list. That's worse. Now we can, because we'll go home and spend time with our friends and family and our hobbies, but in the back of our head, we might be thinking, oh, I'm not that guy. I'm not that gal. I'm important, but not that important. And I didn't make the cut. Why does that affect us? Because we're on the outside there. We're not in the inner ring. We want to belong. What does... Someone saying, we want you for this special project, communicate to us. We belong there. We have a place where we're respected and we are loved. Why do people in general like to be invited? Why do we like to be asked to do something really important? Why do we like to be voted into political office? Why do we like to be complimented for our work and efforts? Because each of those things says what about us? You belong. Welcome in. There's a place where people want you and you have a relationship with them. These things are good in and of themselves. And to be the kind of person who communicates to others that they are valuable and special to you is a good thing, right? We're not diminishing that at all. In fact, that's important in life. But we all want to belong, beloved. And what this world communicates, even if we have the most belonging in the world, family, friends, we have incredible belonging, will still detect in us that there's something missing. There's something that has to be more. The dream team, in 1988, the U.S. men's basketball team lost in the Olympics. Now, they weren't allowed to send NBA players, or they probably would have smoked the world, but they, they lost. They had um, amateurs that were playing, college, uh, semi-pro leagues, et cetera, that would play. They lost. Well, in 1991, they assembled the dream team. Michael Jordan, uh, Drexler, Magic Johnson, Larry Bird, a whole host. It's been called the greatest team ever assembled in the history of sports. And they went there and they uh, won by wide margins. Let's just put it that way. Imagine what that phone call was like to get. You're Charles Barkley. You're John Stockton. And they call you or the agent. They said, we want you on that team. Now that's incredible. You belong there. That's a place of belonging. That is incredible. Imagine what it's like not to get that phone call. I think someone was famously left off the team. Well, that hurts, right? Because you want to be on the inside circle. Now, I want you to think about this. God has assembled as, is assembling a team of people. We'll call them the heavenites or the book of lifers or believers or however you want to uh, term Christians, right? The team has been assembled for a very special task of making God's name great in the world, growing in holiness, worshiping him and loving each other and loving people around them. The team is composed of those who've been handpicked by God. Nobody put themselves on the team. It's a, te it's a place where everybody on the team belongs Everybody, has the, the team captain, the triune God has said, I love you. I want you here. You're my selection. 
I've done this purely by grace and mercy and love. You are mine now. The world doesn't own you. The devil doesn't own you. You don't own yourself. You're mine. You belong here. I've done everything necessary to secure your team membership. And I've given to, that, I've given to you everything that was required free of charge through Jesus Christ, my son. And do you know what being a team, a member of this team means for each person on it? It means belonging. I have a place where I belong now. And it's a satisfying belonging too. Because when we come into a relationship with God, our hearts recognize because they were made for God. Eureka, I found this is it at last. Everything that I've been looking for prior to finding God has failed because he's the infinite one who can satisfy my heart. And now I belong. I know where I belong. What would it be like to be on that team? What would it be like to be on the most incredible team ever composed in the history of the universe? The team that all history is actually just exists to build. God's team to be a member of his household. What would it be like to be on that team? How would that impact how we went on into the world and lived? How would that impact how we thought of ourselves and how we go out into the world and handle difficulty? I submit to you, it would change everything if it were true. And it is true. Beloved, you and I are believers. We're on this incredible team. We belong to God. It's just some incredible words. They are yours. Wow. We are God's. And we belong to Jesus. We belong to the Father. All Jesus says, all, all, all mine are yours. All yours are mine. This is an, an incredible truth. I want to just pause for a moment and just kind of bring this home to, we have a lot of young people, a lot of kids growing up here, which is awesome. Love your singing voices and everything about what you guys are experiencing here, being raised by Christian parents and in a, in a church. I'm guessing that most of you young people have already felt or discerned a bit of this hunger to belong, right? We call it peer pressure. Why is peer pressure so uh, real? Because it, we want to belong. We want to feel that we have a place we can call home in relationships with others. And one thing that we'll figure out soon enough, if we haven't figured out already yet as young people, is that we will do certain things in order to try and fit in and find a place of belonging. And a lot of those things will be tempted to actually do sin and cross boundaries and do things that are inappropriate. That's how deep the hunger for belonging is in every one of us. I will do whatever I can to try and find a place that I belong in, including things with boyfriends or girlfriends that I shouldn't be, primarily sexual relationships, including staying out and disregarding my parents or doing things disobedient to my parents just because I want a friend group where I belong, right? That's in every one of us. We want to belong that badly. That sense of wanting to belong is not in and of itself bad. In fact, it's a good thing. But we've got to figure this out and think through this. And this is for us adults too. I'm not picking on young people here. If we don't get our deepest sense of belonging from being God's, from belonging to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, from having eternal life given to us free of charge, then we're going to notice something in our life. Obeying His commands will be almost impossible. And our life will start unraveling. Why? Because we're going to look for belonging somewhere else. So Christian, it's not just enough to belong to God. 
We've got to actually feed our souls on this and stop and think about what that means in the school setting, in our family settings, in our friend circles. Because if we belong to God, but we're not actually feasting on it and we're not settling our hearts in it, then it will be this great doctrine that's true of us, but you won't see it in our lives. And we're going to start going off the rails in certain ways. In this world, we'll discover that no matter how close our relationships are, no matter how great our marriage and family relationships are, our work relationships, they just don't satisfy. It's not enough. Belonging to God is what all of us need. Look, that was the first thing under this heading. The second thing I want us to think about too regarding belonging to God is that this is a teamwork that causes us to belong to God. Verse 10, all mine are yours and yours are mine. This is, again, unique to John's gospel. How much is emphasized that God the Father and God the Son are on the exact same page, that the work of our redemption is their work together, that there is no disunity in the Godhead regarding saving us, and that God the Father and God the Son share in this work. That is what is heightened in the Gospel of John, just right through the roof. Jesus couldn't make it more clear to everybody around him and to his people. Whatever the Father does, I do. What I do, the Father is behind we are accomplishing this work together. Which means the Father and the Son both have a mutual interest in every believer. Every believer is at the focus, is, is, is in the focus of God the Father and God the Son's redemptive work and look, as it were. We are objects of their affection. Let me try and illustrate it this way. Every, every child knows what this is like to have a parent or a set of parents who dote on you and who look at you and can say, I'm your mom or I'm your dad. That's different than being in the room, in a room with a bunch of parents, right? All of which probably could care for you, but they're not your parents. And to have the gaze of your parent, a loving gaze, a gaze that is special and kind and caring means the world to a child. It means, it means so much to a child. Well, but this is what Jesus is talking about and saying. We belong to God. Jesus and the Father are on the same page. We have their gaze, as it were. We're the object of their work. This is just incredible. And we are special to them. All for his glory. I don't know how you regard yourself as you go out into the world but if you don't fit into the world's categories and you're not successful in the world's categories, then you're not going to have this gaze from any other human being no matter where you go. But to have this gaze from God, to be this loved by God, to be this loved by God the Father and God the Son beloved is something special. It's something that ought to just, I don't know how else to say it, warm our hearts, titillate us and satisfy us down to the very depths of our soul that they care for us this practically and this intimately. The third thing I want us to notice is that Jesus is glorified in our belonging to God. Verse 10, all mine are yours, yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Those who are in the world who do not believe in Jesus as their Lord do not glorify the Lord. Not in this sense. They, every human being ends up glorifying the Lord eventually. But Jesus said he's glorified in the people who are his, in the people who are the fathers, in believers, those who belong to God. Jesus 
is glorified. And Donald Gray Barnhouse, I read this in uh, one sermon, he, uh, the, the pastor who used this illustration said, Donald Gray Barnhouse was talking to a man about the gospel and the man asked him, what does God want? Just tell me, what does God want? And Barnhouse said, what God wants in all the world is to be believed. He wants to be trusted. How is Jesus glorified in believers then? By trusting in him for salvation. What is the biggest slight against God? It's this. It's for God to put his own son on the cross in the place of hell-worthy sinners and to make his son pay for their sins and to have people say, I don't, I don't really trust you. I'm not going to believe in Jesus, your son. And to have that God urge people, believe in my son and you will be saved. And they say, no thanks. No, I don't trust that this is necessary for salvation. I don't trust that Everything necessary for salvation can be found in Christ. I just don't trust what you're doing there. That is not enough for me. No thanks. That is the opposite of glorifying the Lord Jesus Christ. Every believer glorifies the Lord Jesus Christ when we believe in him. Because what are we saying? We're saying this. I trust that what God has done in his son is not only necessary for my salvation, or he wouldn't have done it. It had to happen. Jesus had to obey, had to go to the cross or I couldn't be saved. And it's actually everything I need too. Everything I need for salvation is found in Christ. There is nothing I can add to it. In fact, if I add, I just subtract from it. I ruin it. I destroy it. Everything I need for salvation is found in Christ. And let me ask you this, every one of us here, do we trust in Jesus to be saved? Because that's what glorifies him, that we trust in him and that we find our belonging the most significant belonging of our lives in him, just to have a renewed fellowship with God through Jesus. Do we trust him? If so, we're glorifying Jesus Christ. What an, incre an incredible privilege to think that we get to be involved in glorifying Jesus. And then finally, the second part of the sermon, I want to notice we are kept, verses 11 through 12. I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you, Holy Father, Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. I want us to notice two words here as we kind of walk into this. The word kept, verse 11 and 12. Keep them in your name. Verse 12, when I was with them, I kept them in your name. This is the same word used in Matthew 27 to describe the soldiers who were looking over Jesus. They divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. Same word, kept. Matthew 27, 54, when the centurion and those who were with him keeping watch over Jesus. So this word kept has a military connotation, guarding, watching over keeping your eye on someone or something. That's, that's one aspect of it. And then this word guarded in verse 12, I have guarded them. This word guarded is a bit different, uh, although there's tons of overlap here. And the word guarded is literally referring to the uninterrupted vigilance shepherds show in keeping their flocks, exercising unbroken vigilance as a military guard, emphasizes the needed vigilance to keep what is entrusted stressing the constant personal interest. Acts 12, 4, when Herod had seized Peter, 
he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him. Same word. Guarding with a personal interest in making sure that the person you're guarding cannot escape or get out. So it's got a military use. It's also got a shepherding use. A shepherd guards his flock carefully from predators, from anything that may come in to destroy them, from danger for the sheep. That, those are the two words Jesus uses to describe his relationship with his people. The initial disciples and also us, every believer, he guards us like that and keeps us. And then he says he keeps them, he prays to the Father, keep them in your name. Now this is an interesting request. God's name is who God is. It's a revelation of himself. And so what Jesus is saying here is uh, keep them close to you. Keep them in you. Keep them by you. Keep them in this great salvation. He's praying to his Father to keep them and to guard them like Jesus has kept us and guarded us. And this is the redemptive work of God, beloved, that he keeps us, that he guards us, that he protects us. Two other passages which kind of back this up. 1 Peter 1, 5 by God's power, we are being guarded through faith. And Jude 1, to those who are called beloved, beloved in God the Father and kept by Jesus Christ. What Jesus is talking about here is the keeping work that God the Father and God the Son do for God's people. This past summer, we took a family trip to the state fair. I think a lot of us do that. And when we had parked and walked to the east side, uh, we were in a roundabout. I think the bus comes to pick you up there and they take you over. And an uh, older gentleman in a golf cart came by and stopped and said, you know, after a brief hello, said, uh, keep close track of your kids. There's a lot of kids stealing going on. And then he said to our kids, stay right by your parents. I thought this guy certainly does not work in the advertising department for the state here. If he did, he'd be fired. And so from then on out, we're like, oh, okay, that, thank you for the information. We think we're just going to turn around and go home now. So we, as we proceeded to walk in the fair, of course, we're keeping our kids with an eyesight, especially our young ones a little closer. And I was noticing parents doing a lot the same thing. Probably ran into that guy as well. But that's just the keeping work of a parent, right? You're just kind of keeping track of your kids in a difficult spot. When there's danger, when there's things around that, that you're aware of, but your kids might not be then you just keep track of them. You watch over them diligently and you guard them. This is the keeping ministry of parents. Our God has a ministry infinitely greater and with more at stake. What do we need to be kept or guarded from? A lot. Ourselves. In God's providential love toward us, he so often keeps us from ourselves, doesn't he? And the passions of our flesh and the things we want, we say, Lord, give me this. And he says, no. Can't give you that. I've got to keep and I've got to guard you. And these are things that other people may be able to have, these, even other believers, but you can't because I love you and because I'm going to protect you because I know what you're made of and I know what you can handle and what you can't handle. He's got to keep us from the world. The Lord does this providentially just through sin and its consequences so that all of us as believers say, man, I could never really put down my roots in this world. This place is just not all that great. There's so much chaos. You can lose your job at any moment, be struck with illness or sickness. And so he keeps us from this world, from being destroyed by the world and sucked in by the world by causing the world to look what? Very unattractive to a believer. Now it still has lure. 
and it still has pull. But as Christians, we're kept and guarded from being sucked in by the world and falling into it. And he also protects us from the devil. That Maybe the best case study of this is Luke twenty-two thirty-one. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. The devil would love nothing more than to sift every one of us, to try and drag us down to the pit of hell. And the Lord keeps us and he guards us so that that can't happen. But Jesus ends this little part here by talking about one individual that was an exception. This doesn't mean Jesus wasn't powerful enough to keep the son of destruction, to keep Judas. It doesn't mean Judas slipped through the cracks uh, as if God couldn't pull this off with Judas and Judas, just his unbelief was too strong of a force for God to work against. It just means that according to the scripture, God knew this was going to happen. He decreed it would happen so Jesus could be betrayed and he could allow Satan to enter Judas and Jesus could be driven to the cross by this son of destruction, this betrayer. Judas heard the world's greatest sermons. Judas saw the world's greatest miracles. Judas went out two by two, evangelizing and spreading the gospel with other disciples that Jesus is talking to in his upper room discourse. Judas saw things that you and I will have to wait to get to heaven before we can even see. We see with faith, he saw with his eyes. Judas got to do incredibly powerful things, casting out demons in Jesus' name. Probably telling others that the kingdom of God is here and seeing others come to know Jesus through his testimony, through his witnessing. Judas got to behold these incredible things. He got to sit in the upper room with Jesus. He got to be right close to him. He got to sleep next to him, right? For three years, they're doing what? Traveling around? And they're, if Jesus is now praying, right? He's, he's around his disciples. Constant instruction, constant learning, constantly looking. He got to see a perfect human being. One who never sinned, always loved God above all, and always loved his neighbor as himself. Judas enjoyed this incredible, let's call it fellowship in quotes, not real fellowship, but, but this incredible closeness with Jesus. And he was among his, his disciples. The camaraderie was just unbelievable. He saw how Jesus ministered so mercifully to people as well. There was nothing that's ever been done like it before. And Judas saw Jesus denounce and warn the Pharisees in Matthew 23, woe to you, woe to you. So he knew what hypocrisy was all about and how horrendous it was. Despite all this, and he also heard Jesus say in Matthew 7, what? There's going to be some who come to him on that day and said, Lord, Lord, do we not do all these great things? And he said, the, and Jesus will respond saying those most horrible words, maybe in all of scripture, depart from me, I never knew you. Judas heard Jesus teach on that. And yet despite all of this, he walked away from Jesus. Why did Jesus, why did Jesus, Judas not continue? Well, he wasn't one of God's elect, but I want to, I want to put it in this verse, in this context. He wasn't kept. He wasn't guarded. He wasn't in to begin with, I get that. But look at this context here. Why is Jesus talking about Judas in the context of keeping his people? I think it's for this reason, because he wants every one of us to understand something, that if God doesn't keep us, we won't make it. If God doesn't guard us from ourselves, from the world 
and from the devil. There is nobody in this room that will make it. There's no believer anywhere in all the world that will actually be able to say with Paul, I fought the good fight and I run the race and I kept the faith unless God guards us and keeps us. Don't believe it? Look at Judas. That the scripture might be fulfilled. What ought this to do for us? Well, keep us humble. What else ought to, to do for us? Keep us on our knees, praying to the Lord, loving Him. It ought to send us off with, with hearts that are just amazed. <laughs> Lord, Lord, thank you for all the work that you've done, not just in the cross, but in, in, in the resurrection, but in keeping me. Because I can see the tug of the world when I go out into the world. I can see the tug of my own heart, my own flesh. And I can, I, I can see, I can feel, I can experience the tug of the devil to walk me into all sorts of places. And I can understand the hymn, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. But you keep me. Beloved, if you belong to this God, and you do as a Christian, everybody who believes belongs to this God. And in belonging to him, if you're being kept and guarded, and I am too, how does this change how we go out into the world? How does this change how we think of ourselves? How does this change how we view God? I suggest to you this would just set our hearts on fire. This would give us the most internal security of any human being in all the world. And we go out into the world saying, you know what? Uh, come death, come famine, come sword, come recession, come job loss. It's hard. It's not enjoyable. I don't want to go through that. But my God will keep me and he will guard me. And I will get through this. And I will help my fellow believers get through it as well. And in the end is eternal life. And we can go into the world not arrogant, but confident. Because our God is this incredible. Let's pray.